Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, I knew this dame was in trouble. I knew because she had been gruesomely murdered and was in several pieces. This is The Black Dahlia. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Blast Zone. Welcome to The Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like The Block, eh, The Block Dahlia, no, The Black Dahlia, <laughs> which we'll be talking about tonight. But before we get into that, Ian, how are you doing? You on The Block? I'm still Ian from The Block, but I'm doing okay. I took a COVID test yesterday, the little home kit kind. That mm. was fun. I had not come in contact with anyone in over 10 days, so it's not very likely that I had COVID, but I felt pretty weird. And I had these tests and I wanted to learn how to use them. So I tried it, came out negative, and I guess I got a little psychological boost from that. Right. So I'm rocking on, COVID-free. Excellent. I've also had a COVID test in the last week, you know, nice. around the holidays. They're harder to get to. There was quite a wait searching around, trying to find a place that had a rapid test for that day available. Oh, Okay. Very stressful, but COVID-free and nice. uh, we're rocking along. As the weather changes, you're going to get colds, you're going to feel crappy, but now there's an extra layer of psychological torment to every sniffle <laughs> and every sore throat. Yeah, I have some of these tests that I just bought from Walmart, and I don't know if they're real. Are they good? Do they really know? But they're better than not doing anything. I almost considered getting one when I couldn't find a test, but you go on the website and there's one-star reviews, and you're like, what does that mean? Oh. I don't have time to read them all. You get a little <laughs> nervous. So yeah. I don't know. Luckily, there's no end in sight ever, so this is just going to be the new reality forever. We're going to learn the whole Greek alphabet. So that's a bonus. Exciting. Become scholars. Now that we've uh, ruined everybody's mood, why don't you <laughs> tell me about something you watched this week that you wanted to share with the listeners? I understand we both have documentaries. Is that right? Yeah, it's a documentary kind of a week. I watched the Sparks Brothers, brand new documentary about a band called Sparks. It's on Netflix. I wasn't a fan of Sparks or anything. I knew one song of theirs, Cool Places, from when I was a kid, but pretty much I didn't know anything else about them. But the reason I really wanted to watch this is that it's an Edgar Wright movie. Edgar Wright, who we know and love from this podcast, from uh, to all the movies. Scott Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> big hit on the podcast. Evaporated from my brain, but I still love him. And so if you know Edgar Wright, his movies are entertaining as all hell. And he does that with the documentary. I didn't know what to expect, but the band themselves are really funny and fun and interesting. And he draws it out of them. And he has all these celebrity guests, Pat Oswalt and Beck and Flea, and just a whole string of people come in to say how much they loved this band and how much they were influenced. And then to do bits and to do visual gags, not just straight up interviews. Everything is fun and funny with Edgar Right. So it's really actively trying to entertain you as well as telling you the story of this band, which is really interesting in contrast because I started into Peter Jackson's Beatles documentary and very different, like the opposite approach. He mm. had this great footage, primary source footage of the band, and he spent all this time just crafting it into a story where you could just watch it and have them tell their own story. And it's minimal. There's no evidence of Peter Jackson in that movie like there is of Edgar Wright laughing along with his interview subjects. And they're both super effective and great music documentaries in their own way. But it's interesting to see that range of styles that can both be really powerful. 
Now, do you think the Sparks documentary has value for somebody not familiar with the music? I was hesitant to check it out just because what do I have to gain from it? It worked for me because I had just that barest thread of connection. I waited for at least a third to half of the way through till I even heard the song that I recognized. And I go, oh yeah, that was the song. That's why I know that name. But like, it's a pretty fun movie. Even if you don't give one shit about the music, it's entertaining. All right, I'll give it a chance. I also watched a documentary, maybe a little bit on the nose uh, considering this week's movie, but I checked out 2015's documentary De Palma, Uh, uh, directed, interestingly enough, by Noah Baumbach just covering the films of Brian De Palma, who we're going to be talking about quite a bit this week. But Yeah, great research material. Yeah, that's really why I picked it. It had been on my radar for a little while, but made the most sense this week. And a more of a Jackson-like approach to the right. documentary filmmaking in this one. I know you've watched this one already as well. Yeah. But it's very much just let Brian De Palma play clips from his movies and talk about them and give you a little bit of background info and let you know his decision-making process behind some of them, which is interesting because he's, he's a fairly polarizing figure in Hollywood. A lot of filmmakers really love him, but he's failed to have mainstream success throughout a lot of his career. He's got the big hits everyone knows, Scarface, Carrie, The Untouchables, Mission Impossible, but there's a lot of bombs in between those and uh, a lot of stuff we could eventually cover. And then I actually went and watched most of Snake Eyes okay. after watching the documentary because I'd seen it long time ago and wanted to revisit it. And I'm digging it. I'm not done with it yet. And I know the ending is one of the things people don't like about that movie. So I'm wondering if my estimation will go down. But it starts with this very virtuosic eight minute single cut shot, which actually has cuts in it, but skillfully hidden. And that's fun. You really see him trying to flex his filmmaking muscles a little bit there, which he doesn't do that much in the Black Dahlia. There's a little bit of that early on, but it kind of fades into pretty bland filmmaking, I think, towards the end. Would you agree? It popped out of me at the beginning. And then there's a huge scene. The staircase scene is where he's like, okay, I'm going to do a whole thing. That's going to be a visual treat. It's going to be a set piece, which comes pretty late in the film. And then after that, there's so much plot to get through that you don't notice the dizzying crane shots and stuff, which you did at the beginning when they were extraneous. You're like, we're just on a little stakeout with a couple detectives. And why is a crane flying <laughs> through the building and up and over the top and flipping around the other side? Well, the $50 million budget starts making sense when you consider all the crane shots that are unnecessarily used. But let's before we get too deep into it, what was your familiarity with this movie before the podcast? Had you ever seen it before? Were you a fan of De Palma in general? Were you familiar with the novel? And being an LA native, you must know the true story of the Black Dahlia a little bit, right? A little bit. I think I noticed that the film existed because I had at some point read an article on the real Black Dahlia story and got, oh, that's really interesting. And some of the events transpired not too far from where I live and where I grew up. And I like that kind of stuff, old LA stuff. And I like noir stories. And so it sounds like it would have been a good candidate for me. And I was aware that the film came out and I I definitely recognized the poster art when I looked at it again for this, but I didn't see it. And I have a lot of gaps in my Brian De Palma knowledge. Scarface is an all-time classic that I've seen the first half of multiple times throughout my life and I've never gotten to the end of it. So don't tell me how it ends, but I'm meaning to go back to that one. I don't think any movie loses its luster the older you get, more so than Scarface does. Because when you're like a shithead kid, you watch it and you're just like, this is the best fucking movie I've ever seen. But then you grow up and it's not really the movie's fault, but like you hang out with some dirtbag kids that have Scarface posters on their wall or (laughs) one kid had a Scarface jacket where the back of the jacket was the poster of him holding the gun with a black and white shot. And like his arm went up the sleeve of the jacket. It was just the goofiest shit imaginable. So I guess there's nothing wrong with Scarface, the movie, but I think there's a lot wrong with people that 
love Scarface the movie too much and usually for the wrong reasons. Yeah. If you come away from it like Tony Montana, that's my dude. I wish I could be yeah. like him. You probably took the wrong lesson. Yes. And I think there's a lot of that going around. So when this movie came out, it was like an event for me. I dragged not only my best friend, Craig, but his girlfriend, now wife at the time, and a good friend of mine, Lori, and their cool. mom. Oh, wow. Lori's mom to the movie theater to see it with me. It was opening weekend. We watched it. Everybody was polite to me afterwards because <laughs> like they knew I was a big fan of the book and was really excited for it. And I was like, I put on the brave face like I thought it was good. And then when the DVD came out, I bought it and I watched it and I was like, not sure if I was being honest with myself last time. I don't hate this movie, but it gets a lot of stuff wrong. And I don't really know how to unpack my true feelings for it and where it goes wrong is so specific. It's a very hard movie to cover because the the problems with it are so obvious that yeah. it's like a, a real critical analysis is almost like a moot point. You know, you could show it to any film student. And they'd be like, oh, I see. You know, it was cut to shit. Like there, there's just chunks of this movie missing and it's so obvious. Yeah. But I'm not even so sure that once you know that it was cut, you go, oh, damn, that explains a lot. But I think maybe my first impression, not knowing that on the first watch was just like, this is just muddled. The writer and the director didn't know what they were trying to tell. And you could speculate about what was missing, which you always do when you see like a character show up. And it feels like we should have known something more about that guy because he seems important, but we never seen him before. Kind of, th- you know, there's some of those moments, but a pretty big one, I would say. Is, is the main reveal of the movie. You're like, that guy, I kind of remember him from one scene before, but like... Uh. Yeah, and it's got other big problems. I think the problem that's also related to the edit is that it tries to tell multiple stories, right? It's, it's, it's ostensibly a mystery where you're trying to solve the case that's, you know, the name of the film, but that's pretty much in the backseat, or in a sense, it's in the backseat. It drives a lot of the drama, but the actual case solving isn't the drama. It's what the case does to the protagonists. Right. And then we spend a lot of time with them outside of solving the case. They're fucking boxing half the movie. Yeah. And that's something the book does as well. But when the book has five, 600 pages to get there, yeah. you can take those chances. But with the movie, I think it's like 43 minutes before the Dahlia herself shows up, yeah. which is a pretty bold move for a movie called The Black Dahlia. It's supposed to be like a noir procedural, but right. it's not that. No, it's not. It's almost too obvious to call a De Palma movie Hitchcockian, but it really is more concerned with the deteriorating mental state of most of its cast right. as opposed to solving a case. Yeah, that's well put. So do you want me to talk a little bit about the making of the movie? Yeah, let's hear how this thing happened. All right. So by 2005, Brian De Palma had hit a rough patch in his career. A filmmaker who'd found both critical and commercial success in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, his prior three films, Snake Eyes, Mission to Mars, and Femme Fatale, had bombed at the box office and received generally negative reviews from critics. Should have known he'd have a string of bad luck when he rolled Snake Eyes. De Palma thought he might have finally encountered a stroke of luck when David Fincher walked away from his adaptation of James Elroy's hit crime novel, The Black Dahlia, giving De Palma the opportunity to step in and return to the neo-noir show. Genre. Given a relatively robust budget of $50 million, De Palma got to work. After some casting mishaps and switcheroos, production was underway in April 2005, splitting time between Los Angeles and Bulgaria. Ah, Bulgaria, the Los Angeles of sheep cheese. With principal photography completed that summer, the film went into post-production and editing, which is where the movie apparently went off the rails. De Palma's original three-hour-plus cut of the film was reportedly quite good, with no lesser authority than James Elroy himself praising it as a faithful and superior 
superior approach to his book. The studio balked at the runtime, however, forcing De Palma to cut an hour from the movie, which explains a lot when you actually watch it. And with this movie, you need someone to explain a lot when you actually watch it. The movie was released on September 15th, 2006, and opened in second place with $10 million, behind future Best Picture winner The Gridiron Gang. We lost, by the way. I'm sorry. No, there's a mistake. Critics were mostly unhappy with the film, with many commenting on how it seemed to be missing large chunks of exposition. Audiences seemed to hate the movie as well as it received a D-plus from CinemaScore, which is pretty bad. They'll give anything a fucking A. The movie would gross only $22.5 million in North America and $49 million worldwide, failing to even make back its production budget. The film is mostly forgotten today, except as the final theatrical movie Brian De Palma would make with the full backing of a major Hollywood studio. The last straw. They finally had it with him. They chopped him up and left him in a field after that. I don't know much about Mission to Mars' current standing, but both Snake Eyes and Femme Fatale have become favorites of hipsters in the past 10 years. So it seems like maybe they got a bad rap. Like I said, I have to go back and finish Snake Eyes and watch Femme Fatale for the first time in probably 20 years. But I remember liking Femme Fatale just fine as like a 15-year-old boy, which shouldn't be any surprise because most of movies just Rebecca Romaine being hot. Oh, okay. So. Yeah, De Palma does like to titillate. He gets uh, criticized sometimes for the women in his movies being victimized. He's been yeah. called uh, Hollywood's foremost pervert, I believe. <laughs> I, I don't know who to attribute the quote to. I'd have to find it, but it is it is out there. So He's a curious dude. In the De Palma documentary, he comes across as a warm, funny grandpa. He's sitting in front of his fireplace and telling you the stories of his movies. And it obviously leaves some stuff out because he has a very dark mind and he loves to explore this dark stuff. And he comments on it a little bit in the doc, but like in a way that makes it sound harmless and cute and funny. And it's actually, you know, there's some really gruesome violence in De Palma movies. And this one has just a taste of it. I actually, despite the fact that the Black Dahlia corpse is mutilated in a horrifying way, it's handled somewhat in a classy way. They don't dwell on it with close-ups too much. That part didn't turn me off. No, I wouldn't even call it a gory movie. You get several glimpses of the body after the fact, but like you said, they're not overly lurid. They're not exploitative. Yeah. Aside from that, most of the violence is pretty like, Patton Oswalt has a great bit about how he describes like the Dirty Harry movies are just guys dying like this. I'll try to find the clip and put it in the show notes, but that's pretty much what this is. It's very like 70s Hollywood violence where just like guys getting shot with revolvers and like dying in pain, but relatively bloodless. Yeah, there's Um, a lot of punching because they got the boxers. Both of our partners, they're ex-boxers, so they handle a lot of things with their bare fists. Not even ex at the time of the movie. They're, you know, the first 30 minutes of this movie are essentially a boxing movie building up to their showdown. Interesting character development. Fun to do, and you can definitely see, like you said, how it parallels a book structure, right? In a book, you have time to do whole acts of your book. And I think if I understand this book, I didn't read it, but I read about it in prepping for this. It has these four different sections and they're not even contiguous time-wise way. The movie is one continuous timeline without any major gaps of, I think, more than a few days or weeks here or there as it winds up. But in the in the book, the Black Dahlia case is like closed for a couple years before the main character reopens it when he learns some new stuff. Yeah, Elroy, he makes these very sprawling novels that cover decades occasionally. Uh-huh. And I wanted to talk a little bit about him before we got into the movie and just okay. see what your impression of him was because LA Confidential was the first R-rated movie I ever saw in a movie theater. I'm pretty uh-huh. sure that was like 11 years old, which is way too young to watch LA Confidential <laughs> anywhere, especially in a movie theater. But I had a negligent babysitter that night who decided to take <laughs> me to the movies and said, what do you want to see? And I said, LA Confidential. Said, All right. And then I sought out the book pretty soon after that. So I'm reading LA Confidential, the book at like 12, nice. which is fucking horrifying 
horrifying. They cut a whole subplot from the movie about a serial killer that kills little kids and sews their body parts together to try to make a Frankenstein. Holy shit. A Frankenstein monster. I don't want any fucking reply guys getting on me. I know it's <laughs> oh, the Oh man, monster. you did not need that when you were the age of the kids being Frankensteins. Seriously. But it kickstarted this lifelong affection for noir I have, uh, which I know you share. Like, where did your love for noir come from? And, and are you familiar with Elroy's work at all? I think I had the usual sort of young boy attraction to cop stories and detective stories. And as I grew older, the LA aspect of it was interesting to me growing up here. And I'm always, there's not that much history in LA. So anytime you can see stuff that's oh, here's what a place looked like 40 years ago or 50 or 60 mm-hmm. or however many years ago oh, or 80 years ago. 50 years ago. No one was alive then. That's an Eddie Izzard bit. I'm doing a lot of bits <laughs> from stand-ups today. So like, that's always interested me. So that's the other sort of hook is, oh, I know that, but I know that apartment building. I know that street. I know that restaurant. And then as a reader, I stumbled into just looking for other stuff to read. I stumbled into the genre a little bit. And then there were other movies too. Obviously, Life Confidential was an influential movie. Devil in a Blue Dress was an influential movie mm-hmm. that sort of, I'm like, oh yeah, I dig this Great stuff. Great movie too. Yeah. So you haven't read any Elroy up until this point? No, I guess I haven't. I always get all my LA detective mystery writer names mixed up and I'm like, was that the guy I read or was it, did I read the other guy? So that shows you what kind of expert I am on the literature. You can usually tell an Elroy novel because it's pretty racist. Okay. Yeah. Not a great guy okay. by all accounts. So we can, we can dispense with that. But yeah, he was certainly a formative figure in my getting into noir. So that uh, that is the main reason I was there outside the movie theater <laughs> opening night for The Black Dolly. Because The Black Dolly was actually my favorite novel of his L.A. quartet. Okay. It was the first. And it was The Black Dahlia, The Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, and White Jazz, I think, were the four of them. So, and now he's doing a second quartet, which I've read the first one of, but I think there's two or three out. Anywho, yeah. I think it's really interesting to compare LA Confidential and this movie because- Because one of them's good. One of them's good. <laughs> They're from the same author in the same series. There's some characters that overlap. There are a few that, that okay. pop up, like D.A. Ellis Lowe is a character in both. And there's a couple other ones. Russ Millard shows up in both. That's the Mike Starr character. The, the friendly yeah. guy. The, the good, the, the nice the, cop. Yeah. yeah, the nice cop. Just seemed like a swell guy. Yeah, he'll sit on a bumper with you and console you after she- shit goes bad. But to me, there's such a contrast. And obviously the success of LA Confidential contributes to the making of this movie. We got to adapt more of his films because the first one was such a hit. But to me, there's something in the core, both of comparing the two, LA Confidential also somewhat sprawling, three main characters or two and a half main characters, right? I say three. One of them bites it pretty late in the story. (laughs) But they're really different. They're beautifully characterized. Like these guys, you can draw a big crayon outline and recognize the three guys because of what's so unique about their personalities. And this movie, in contrast, the two guys have the same backstory and like nothing all that unique about them in the movie, at least. Maybe there's something in the book that sets up why their personalities either mesh so well or spark off each other. But in the movie adaptation, there's nothing. It's just, hey, we're both boxers and we're both cops. Why don't we hang out and do a charity fight? And then that's the whole thing. And then they start going nuts. Like the the Eckhart character just turns into a maniac. Like on a Yeah, dime, in, so. in one of the least convincing manic spirals I've ever seen on film. <laughs> but why don't we get into it? Why don't we start going through the story and we can talk about that a little more sure. in depth. Yeah, that sounds fun. So here we go. <laughs> Dwight Bucky Bleichert, played by Josh Hartnett, is an LAPD beat cop who used to be a pro boxer. 
he meets another ex-boxer cop named Lee Blanchard, played by Aaron Eckhart. After participating in a charity boxing match together and befriending the police chief and deputy DA, Bucky and Lee get promoted to detective and become partners and friends, spending a lot of time with Lee's girlfriend Kay, played by Scarlett Johansson. After a stakeout that gets violent, Bucky and Lee stumble into an unrelated murder. The mutilated body of a young dark-haired actress is found in a field. It's Elizabeth Short, aka the Black Dahlia. Lee becomes obsessed with the case, and he gets himself and Bucky assigned to a special task force to investigate. Meanwhile, Kay comes on to Bucky, but he rebuffs her. I wanted to point out, much like you were doing some location spotting in Los Angeles, I spent a lot of time in Bulgaria as a youth. Oh. And I was I was like, oh, I know that field. That's no, <laughs> Of course, it's all made up. I've never been to fucking Bulgaria. Just an odd I, choice for an L.A. set film, right? I was straining to see, like, wait, is that field in, <laughs> is, is in Bulgaria? Because it looks pretty authentic. The street that they're on looks like the neighborhood that they're talking about, where it's supposed to be. At this point in time, I don't think there are any big grassy expanses behind those streets in that part of South LA. So I don't know. I couldn't figure out that. There's obviously some locations that they actually shot in LA with some recognizable landmarks. Yeah. I wonder if the Bulgaria stuff was mostly sets just for like budgetary reasons. Yeah. So, all right. So you got Josh Hartnett, uh, America's heartthrob once upon a time playing, I guess the main character, right? Yeah. I mean, like Eckhart's in it, but not quite as much. You see most of the stuff through Blyker's eyes. Yeah. And he's just kind of like a little do-gooder, little goody two-shoes type of dude, right? But with a mean, mean hook. Yeah. Uh, he can punch a man and put him down pretty fast. <laughs> Other than that, he's my main problem with this movie. Mm. You've got me to admit it right at the top here. I, I think that the movie collapses. I boxed you into a corner there. hey You did. I'm up against <laughs> the ropes. But all the actors suffer from trying to act these scenes that they've got. And it's painful in, in a lot of parts. So like Hartnett is the weakest maybe of the main stars, but even the better people like Eckhart, ScarJo, like Hilary Swank, people mm. with Oscar noms are suffering trying to act these scenes out. And it's rough. I feel like De Palma threw him into these scenes where there's not quite enough meaningful dramatic moment to actually play in the scene. And he's like, well, the actors will just create dramatic moments and they can't. Or when they try, it does not work because why are you crying over that right now? Or why are you freaking out over this little plot point that actually was one of the least cry-worthy plot points I heard in the last half hour? There's just all these weird moments that feel really awkward to me. See, so I have a slightly different reading of it. And I, I wonder... If, if you'd watched the first half of this movie, would you have such a problem with Hartnett? Because I like him in the beginning as this like babe in the woods type, but you expect the movie to bring him down a path where he hardens and, and he gets a little calloused, but okay. it never really happens. But I think he's good in the first half of this movie, but his character just doesn't develop in the way it needs to, to be convincing. So he's stuck in this in-between stage that it has no payoff. But I thought he was pretty good in the first parts of this movie. My problems with this cast are Eckhart is fine until he has to start quote unquote spiraling because we'll get into our main issues with that. I think Swank and Scarlett Johansson are both trying to talk like actors talked in the forties and fifties, but nobody else is. So it makes them feel very (laughs) like they're both doing that kind of, you know, very affected voice that actresses and actors would do back in the day, but like Hartnett and Eckhart aren't doing it. So it's just very jarring comparison. Do you get that? 
Yeah, they're both working hard. Uh, and for me, I thought it stopped short of them actually feeling kind of sweaty and bad because I like both of them. You know, they're both really appealing actresses. So, like, I didn't begrudge them that. And Hilary Swank leans into it hard. And that's also her character. Like, the K character, the Scarlett Johansson character, is more just a straightforward love interest, you know. Well, we haven't even met Madeline yet. So That's right. I'll, sa- can- I'll save most of my gripes for her character for the next <laughs> section. But yeah, uh, ScarJo got a she, she got a little bit of a little flack for this role, but I don't think she was bad in it. I think she's playing the part fine, just maybe a little over the top in, in moments. Yeah. The most distracting part for me was the cigarette smoking. Did that bother you? Everyone's got their 40s style way of holding their cigarettes and they're all lighting up these unfiltered cigarettes. A lot of smoking in this movie. Yeah. A lot of smoking indoors. It was a different time. But no, I guess, you know, that's all kind of apropos for the era. And I think it's a De Palma thing too. Characters do be smoking in De Palma movies and not just in the Jim Carrey in the mask sense. Like they're actually smoking cigarettes often. <laughs> I just felt like I could, when I saw them gripping the cigarette, each one had a different grip and it was like, oh, that's a very stylized forties. You know, it goes so far as that the Hillary Swank character has a cigarette holder and she holds it across the palm of her hand in a very stylized way. But I felt like I could see their acting coaches working on their cigarette grips so that each of them would have a unique style. It felt right. a little bit overplayed. Maybe could have spent more time on the the story less time on the cigarette grips cigarette camp that the actors all went to for six weeks so like we said the the movie is about boxing for a big chunk of it yeah and the boxing the the fight itself pretty well done as far as movie boxing goes right like it's yeah I appreciated that the boxing was semi-realistic, except the fact that's where Aaron Eckhart's character already reveals that he's going to be kind of a nut job because they do all this fighting. They do some fighting in the streets in a riot at, when they first meet, and then they do some training. Elroy loves the, riots. They're like a big plot point in a lot of his books. Oh, yeah, for sure. They're just a sideshow in this movie, but it's a great way to see that these guys can both knock guys out and, you know, some cool fighting. It's almost turns into like a kung fu fighting movie in that first section where like, yes. he's blocking bats with other his, like, his nightstick yeah his, like, yeah, his he, nightstick he's doing all these moves that that's like a very martial arts type thing is using it almost like a, what do they call it like a tonfa the uh yeah he's actually being artful but. yeah but you're right it's fun to see the boxing where they're not just doing rocky style wide swinging haymakers the boxing scene ends pretty painfully because hartnett's bucky character takes a fall but and then you're distracted by the fact that he punches his front teeth out which is like a tip to the idea that Lee is capable of some crazy stuff. Like in a charity boxing match with your friend, a fellow cop, you don't have to finish him that dramatically. Yeah, he landed quite a knockout blow, knocked out two of his front teeth. and uh, But then he gets fake teeth and it's like, what the fuck? It's another thing. If you really strap for time, you can cut out the scene of him getting fitted for his dentures or whatever. <laughs> and just I don't have if, him lose his front teeth. Yeah, that, that would rob you of the cool shot with the teeth lying very cinematically on the judge's scorecard or whatever that was that the Palma zoomed in on. Never let it go to the judges. Blanchard, <laughs> he was an advocate of that old saying. So yeah. never let your front teeth go to the judges. That's my rule. They trained for seven months, four hours a day. I don't know how many days a week, but like, That's I feel like lot. you could have learned that shit in a few weeks, right? Like For the amount of boxing they do on a film, yeah, block your body with your elbows. <laughs> like It's just not, it's not all that complicated. It wasn't that fancy. It was nice. You could tell that they put in some effort and they moved like boxers. Right. Not just walking forward with your hands at your side and flinging hooks whenever you feel like it. But no, a good boxing scene. But again, huge chunk of the movie. And then we meet the actual Dahlia, Elizabeth Short, played by Mia Kirshner, an actress who I mostly know from Not Another Teen Movie. 
It's one of the better parodies of that era of parodies that were really bad. But she wasn't supposed to be in the movie. She was just there for like screen tests, much like her character. And they ended up liking it so much that they wrote this part because this whole storyline of these uh, recurring casting videos is not in the book. So they added that in there to throw Uh Mia Kirshner a bone because they really liked how she looked on screen and how she was performing. And it does give you a little bit more of a tragic backstory for the character that's not just done through exposition. You can actually see her acting it out. And you're not really sure when she's telling the truth or not. It's an interesting thing. Those scenes were effective for me. Yeah, I did not know that those were fully constructed by De Palma and the screenwriter. And I think that is where I have to give him kudos for that choice. And a lot of other places will criticize him for not making the movie cinematic enough, but that was a great way to bring a otherwise invisible character to life. Imagine if this movie didn't have those scenes and they didn't hardly spend any time on the case. You'd be like, why the fuck was this movie called The Black Dahlia? But at least they show her and you get to know her. And she gives a great performance in these weird, awkward scenes where she's screen testing and, and De Palma. They're not just sitting. weird and awkward. Like they're vaguely threatening, right? Didn't you feel like she was in danger even during those scenes? Yeah, I guess it was effective at communicating that. Palma's playing like a real shitty CD producer type casting agent and uh, he's playing it well. Yeah, yeah. although his like funny grandpa sound, it wasn't the best for me. I was like, maybe they could have cast an actor and given those scenes a little more drama, but at least it lets you focus on Mia Kirshner, who's, who is somehow electric. She does it just by smiling through tears most of the time mm-hmm. in most of those scenes. She's like totally fucked up, but incredibly strong and smiling her way through these moments. And it's pretty compelling. And that's a big win for the movie because you actually care about this character. Not only do we care about this character, do you know who else cares about this character deeply is Detective Lee Blanchard. Oh my uh, God. Because he finds this body and it feels like 48 hours later, he's just like a snarling fucking lunatic (laughs) storming out of rooms and he's got Bucky's dad's apartment, like with the red string and the picture, yeah. putting together this whole case. He's doing a Pepe Sylvia in the apartment. He's throwing shit like Kay puts a plate down on the table and he's, no, my files are there. And he fucking smashes. Does he smash it? Or at least he yells at her. It totally Yeah, I think he like flings it off the table. It's definitely an overreaction. This It all happens a bit too fast. And I'm not sure Eckhart has it in him. As, as respectful as I can be. I think he's best playing like a charismatic douchebag, which is what he is in the early parts of this movie yes yeah that's where he's very natural yeah and i I don't think he's he's able to sell the torment going on in in this character i think that's true of most of the actors in this movie and most of the scenes they can't sell it but I can't really blame him because nothing that would explain his state of mind is on screen. Like he just has to act crazy. And all he's given are the crazy lines, like go in there and be a crazy man. And it's like, well, show me somewhere like becoming crazy, you know, or give me like something that I say about the only thing he's explained is third party, right? Kay tells much later, Kay tells Bucky, oh yeah, his sister got abducted or killed or something. And we're like, oh, that explains the whole craziness that we've been subjected to for the first half of this movie. And I think part of it is that the Bobby DeWitt character getting out of jail has taken a toll on his mental health because we know they have a history. We don't know exactly what it is. And then when we find out what it is, we still don't know exactly what it is because they're hiding <laughs> stuff from us. So yeah, th- there are reasons for him to be deteriorating mentally, but it goes from him being like this charming little patriarch of this makeshift family they've developed to just being a crazy person almost immediately. And it's just, it's not a gradual enough buildup. All right. That's everything I had for the first section. Anything else you wanted to talk about? No, let's move on and see what happens next. Let's meet the Linscotts. Ooh, yeah. it's exciting. Bucky investigates Elizabeth Short's known associates, which leads him to a similar looking, putting that in quotes, similar, dark haired woman named Madeline Linscott, played by Hilary Swank. After interrogating Madeline, he takes her on a date 
which starts with a dinner with her eccentric family and ends with sex in a seedy motel. As the police review a stag film that Short made, Lee has a meltdown and gets kicked off the investigation. Lee follows a tip and goes off to take revenge on a criminal who had once abused Kay, the aforementioned Bobby DeWitt. But it is a setup. Bucky tries to intervene, but sees his partner fall to his death. There you go. There's a lot condensed in this part trying to describe what happened. The police review a stag film that Short made. Short is Elizabeth Short, the aforementioned Black Dahlia. She comes up so infrequently that every time when we mention her name, I feel like I have to explain who she is. Right, remind everyone who she is. Yeah, she's in this porno film. Sometimes they call her Betty, so that gets even more confusing. Right, yeah, exactly. Half the people call her Betty, Elizabeth, the Dahlia. The Dahlia. Too many names. This isn't Lord of the Rings. Like, not everything (laughs) needs to have several names, especially a character that we see in very fleeting glances. Yeah, and then she dies, but she comes back later as Dahlia the White, which is confusing. On the third day at at the sunrise, look for my... Yeah, but... But Yeah, so, and then again, there's more examples of why is Lee acting that way? The cops found this film... And she's having sex in it with another young actress. She doesn't seem thrilled about it. She's not thrilled about it. She seems like she's being coerced. She's visibly unhappy in some of it. The other girl has some kind of sex toy. We also found out that the other girl is supposedly 15, maybe. And De Palma's showing her to us with her top off, which is uncomfortable if you think about that. Mm. And I'm like, oh, that's probably why it's so uncomfortable for Bucky and Lee as they're watching it in this room full of cops. Like they're freaking out about the child abuse that's going on on and lee just totally loses it he throws a bunch of shit off somebody else's throws, shit. he throws the film reel yeah and somebody else's notebook off a desk and runs crying out of the room and meanwhile bucky's also crying he cries in just about every scene but he stays pretty, yeah, he's a pretty sensitive guy for this cold-blooded cop that he's supposed to become and then yeah we're like what the fuck is wrong with lee i wasn't even sure what he was most mad about and i, I realized later it's because he's so passionate about the black dahlia because of his sister i guess but definitely not clear at that point but apparently right. throwing a film reel on the floor in front of the, the police chief will get you taken off the... That seems extreme, right? Doesn't that seem like an extreme reaction to his reaction? Yeah. I understand like he was a dick, but you know, cops get emotional. Yeah, let them be angry, violent men. That's what they were. At a feature, least not a bug. Yeah, <laughs> but that was nearly the end of his career. That feels also like maybe shorthand for other stuff that happened in the book that they couldn't show in the movie. I don't know. Yeah, you know, we know the film was cut by a third, but we don't know where the cuts came. So it's hard to say if they film some more expository stuff around Lee. But Lee's character, when he, he exits the movie in dramatic fashion, you're kind of like, that's it? This guy we've been with for all this time, they like were built up as the second lead, essentially. Uh-huh. He's just gone now? It felt very early in the movie, even though, you know, it is about two thirds through the movie. But you're just like, we, we didn't do anything with him. Yeah, I think the pacing is really weird. Like you said, probably because of the cuts and they were cut in uneven spots. So it moves fast and then slow and then you just you don't have a sense for what the rhythm is of the film but before we leave the police station can we talk about how goddamn brown that police station is the whole movie has a 40s sepia tone aesthetic but it is fucking thick in the police station what happened was they painted it white it's all the cigarette smoke has stained the walls to such a degree that now it's it's just this weird beige and brown everywhere (laughs) it's so brown like everything is slightly brown but the police station is just thick with smog or it's almost like Blade Runner level of, wow, this world is really monochromatic and spooky. They're all wearing like brown suits too. It's very... (laughs) 
they're practically swimming through the sepia ink. That's a noir thing, though. Even though it's not black and white, it is coming off very monochromatic and muted in color. So that kind yeah. of fits the, the tone. Yeah, overall, De Palma went for it. It's just like claustrophobic to me in that particular location. That's fair. We actually don't spend that much more time in the police station after this, right? It's mostly meeting dames in hotel rooms and bars and, and such. Yeah, the police work becomes a little more extrajudicial in the second half of the film for various reasons. But let's talk about the coming together of Bucky and Madeline Lynn Scott, Hilary Swank, strange performance. My first issue with the Hilary Swank character is this idea that she is so striking uh, a resemblance to Mia Kirshner as to be like seeing a ghost, yeah. you know? that just does not come through. And I don't know that there's any two characters they could have picked that were A, available at the same time, you know, (laughs) within their budget and could actually act to make that feasible. But it feels like a plot point you don't necessarily need. If they don't look alike, then just don't keep bringing it up that they do. It goes back to the obsession plot, right? If you really believed, if you had been given enough grounding to know why Lee Blanchard is obsessed with the Dahlia and why Bucky is also upset, like he's supposedly one notch less obsessed than Lee is with the Dahlia. And that's theoretically what's driving his attraction to Madeline as well. But that's not in there. It's not in the text as far as I could see, although I think that was the intention. But yeah, yes, I think because he's sleeping with, he immediately goes on a date with her and sleeps with her. And for me, it was really weird. Like, why? This kid has already turned down sex. He's been really awkward about the idea of women. He's had some corny line about, I'm saving myself for Betty Grable or something. I don't know. Yeah, some, some actress of the era. <laughs> some old-timey actress. Yeah, sexual dysfunction is a big Elroy theme. So okay. yeah, you're reading that correctly, that he is supposed to have a weird relationship to sex. Much like Lee Blanchard does, Kay Lake mentions pretty early on that they don't sleep together. But him diving into bed with Madeline is evidence of his obsession with the case. But again, you have to really look for that to find it. We're we're examining this on a bit deeper level than I think most people. It's not readily apparent or come through until Kay literally like says it at the end of the movie. Yeah. And so you're left with, okay, let me try to understand this movie through the lens of typical detective stuff and noir stuff. And you're like, okay, well, the detective guy is supposed to be tough and hard boiled and a bit of a womanizer. And so he's supposed to meet the woman and be really stern with her. But his whole thing where he's grilling her doesn't play for me. His don't bullshit me stuff comes off as totally weak and soft. And that's one of the ways I think Hartnett falls down and pulling this character off. And then him betting her, I'm like, he must be doing this for a reason, not because he's a guy who likes to sleep with hot women that he meets, you know? Did you find that you were looking for other reasons why this character was doing this thing? Because it wasn't for the obvious, like, hard-boiled detective reason? Yeah, I think you're already understanding the main triangle has a weird relationship to sex. So if he's diving into it this readily, then yeah, there must be something else working there. But again, that's coming from a familiarity with noir tropes that are actively being subverted in the story. It's coming from familiarity, on my case, of Elroy's recurring themes. And from what we know from later in the movie, I think it it could just something that is a complete missed opportunity for a viewer who doesn't necessarily have that information. So my last funny comment on Bucky having sex is they go to a seedy motel. They have sex. The camera cuts away and back to them lying in each other's arms. He lights up two cigarettes because he need a lot of cigarettes when you're in the 40s. And he puts on his fedora. It's hanging on the bedpost and he's lying in bed naked with a girl, except he's got a fucking fedora on his head. What is that? Is that not what you're supposed to do? You're telling me I've been doing it wrong all these years, Ian? Okay, I may not be the expert here on sex, but I don't know. I never put on a fedora after sex. I may be missing out on something. You got to get one. Yeah. It's tough when you're dating 
because you go out to the bar, you don't want to wear your fedora because they're not really in vogue anymore. But you got to <laughs> keep it like tucked into your pocket just in case you need case it for later. You go over to her place, you need a fedora on hand. Right. But now that I'm married, it's just at my house all the time. So it's easy. I know where it's at at all times. Um, but yeah, who would that character? So that leads me to imagine who was this character supposed to be that he was such a tough guy, 40s detective that he needed a hat. He felt naked without his detective hat. He also doesn't seem like a particularly driven cop, except for this one case, you know, like you get the idea that he's just going through the motions of being a cop up until this case finds him. So the hard boiled detective doesn't really play. Yeah. I think most of that's, like you said, in Hartnett's performance, which I don't hate as much as you did, but I do think it gets weaker as the movie goes on. I feel that's true of everyone's performance in this movie. Were they like running out of time? Did they shoot it like chronologically? And <laughs> that's at the end, really they were like, we're question. doing one take. Let's get the fuck out of here. Yeah, because there's we some... We want to be in Bulgaria anymore. <laughs> it could be it. They got sick of the Bulgarian cuisine they were getting. Yeah, because Scarlett Johansson, I think, is a quality actor. Really good. And one of the some better of those, ones, yeah. yeah. Some of those late scenes are just so wooden and awful. I'm cringe. I have a bigger problem with Swank's performance than a Scarlet's. I think Swank is miscast. I could see her as Kay Lake. I don't really see her as a femme fatale. They wanted Eva Green for this role. Uh-huh. And I know she's wary of being typecast as a femme fatale, but there's a reason she is because like she's really good at it. <laughs> She has a very old timey like movie star look to her and she can just pull those lines off. I don't know that Swank can. She works better as a more relatable, wholesome type character. That's where I've seen her mostly play. So put her in the K Lake role and I think that's fine. Like I think Scarlett could play Madeline, but I don't think Swank saying, is, yeah. is the person for it. It would have like, been if better. They swapped, if they swapped roles, it might have been better. I see what you're saying. For whatever reason, I bought Hillary Swank in what she was doing. She was going for it and somehow it worked for me, but to each their own because you found Hartnett easier to swallow. And I was like, okay, she's going big. She's doing the weird mid-Atlantic, almost British accent that we know that at least actors did Charmed, yeah. In the 40s and she's doing it, but she sold it and I bought it. And then after that, I'm like, okay, I'm good with whatever this character's doing, even though it's ridiculous. And it gets more ridiculous when we meet her family and maybe that helps justify (laughs) how weird she is because her family is off the rails. Fucking nightmare this carnival funhouse that bucky goes into for dinner all these characters are horrifying in their own unique way but let's talk about it so bucky goes over and meets the linscotts and you know right away that it's weird because something weird happens with the cinematography it switches for the first and only time in the movie into a pov cam he gets to the mm-hmm. door he rings the doorbell and all of a sudden we're looking out through bucky's eyes and i'm like that's interesting is this scene gonna be scary is he about to like you know kind of witness a murder <laughs> and it kind of is but no this is a character scene that's borders on farcical because his family gets weirder and weirder and you're like driving through the living room behind bucky's eyes and you're meeting the dad and you're meeting the mom and you're going right up to their faces it's like really intimate it's bucky vision baby like even if you were bucky he still shouldn't be that close to their faces <laughs> uh, yes yeah, stand back a little close bit. talker yeah give you some <laughs> personal space so that was weird uh, and then it comes in it goes and he sits at the dining table and it snaps back to regular camera coverage um, i feel like even the regular shots in this scene though are, are meant to feel a little claustrophobic like he's shooting in closer to the actors than he does part of that's interior versus exterior shots but it did feel like a claustrophobic kind of feeling throughout the whole dinner scene, which I'm sure was intentional because it fits the the tone of the conversation they're having. Yeah, things get weird. Characters are weird. And the characters that you think are normal, maybe they're the weirdest of all. Like Madeline's uh, young sister? <laughs> Her young sister has the punchline of the scene almost, right? But I don't know, maybe we should first talk about the mom, Ramona, because she steals the show. Are you talking about the greatest actor of all time? <laughs> okay, I don't want to be mean because Fiona Shaw is a good actress. You know, she's been good. 
good in other stuff. I've, I've uh-huh. seen her in other movies and other shows. She was in the Harry Potter movies. She's one of the main characters on Killing Eve, which is a show I enjoy. But man, she is going for it in this movie. She is off the wall um, in this scene, but even more so in her later appearance. But she's plenty wild in this scene. Believe me, it's something to see. Like you should watch this movie just to witness this performance. Just for that. Yeah, this character is very angry, very drunk, a little bit cracked in the head from everything that she's been through, which we find out later on. She's on pills, I believe. Oh, yeah. They mentioned that, yeah, she likes to take the pills. And like you said, we talk about the noir genre. There's some examples of some very unhinged women. Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard. Faye Dunaway loses it for a little while in Chinatown. Understandably so, when you figure out what's going on in Chinatown. (laughs) Yeah, she is well motivated in Chinatown to go off the rails. Ramona is just in fifth gear from the minute you meet her, and she is jumping curbs and running over everything in this scene. Yeah, and it's something to witness. I love her. Unconditionally. <laughs> That's nice. You found the love the in movie your heart. does start like it, when you feel it dragging, all you need is Fiona Shaw to come on screen. You're like, all right, I'm going to get my popcorn. I'm going to fucking strap myself in. We're in Something's for a while. Happen. Yeah, there's yeah. a few popcorn moments, and this is one of them. And her other big scene is definitely one of them. So then the youngest of the Lynn Scott clan is it Martha? Martha, played by Rachel Minor. Hands over a piece of paper she's been doodling. And what's she's on it, Ian? Well, let me set it up because the dad's like, Madeline's cute and everything, but Martha's my real genius. She's an artist. In fact, she's going to draw a portrait of you while we sit here and eat dinner. She takes out her sketch pad. She's sketching away through the whole scene. <laughs> and then she hands it to him. Like, they're all still talking. She hands it to him. It's a caricature style cartoon of some doggy style sex going on where a cartoon Bucky has a cartoon sister Madeline bent over and it is bonkers and he looks at it and he can't say anything and no one else at the table can see it but madeline looks and gives him a smile and he gives her a smile i'm just fucking screaming at the screen what the fuck is going on (laughs) yeah it's a moment that's when the movie i think is when it's leaning into the insanity it's very entertaining when it tries to be more of a straightforward hard-boiled detective drama it loses something just give me more crazy shit like that you know yeah no you're right if there would have been more of that and less of the dry tortured scenes of Scarlett Johansson and Josh Hartnett trying to milk emotion out of nothing. It would have been a much better movie. Did want to shout out Rachel Miner for being on one of my favorite shows of all time. The one season wonder Terriers. Oh, that was okay. on FX. Did you ever see that? Ever I did that not. I've heard tell that it's a good little nugget. Needs to yeah, be it's great. It's probably the, if I could wave a magic wand and give any one season show a second season, it would probably be that one. Oh, really? Okay. But she had a prominent role in the early episodes of that show. So I knew I recognized her from somewhere. I had to look it up and lo and behold, it's from there. Yeah, she was effective in this little funny, funky role that she had. Yeah, she's a good actress. Let's see what she's doing now. I'm going to pull it up right now. Oh, she was on Supernatural, which ran for 12 years. So if you find yourself on a show like that, I guess you don't need to. That's solid work, man. Too much, right? Yeah. You're syndicated. You're making those residuals. Reliable paychecks. Love it. So after this, where does he go from there? He goes back and finds out more of the backstory, right? Between Kay and Bobby DeWitt and Lee gets the whole picture. Yeah, that's where we find out about the sister. It's this whole thing that unfolds like it's supposed to be a shocking revelation. Oh, Lee's gone off after Bobby DeWitt. He was given a tip that uh, Bobby DeWitt's going to do a drug deal in this building. And so he's going there to take his revenge, or at least that's what Bucky thinks is he's going there to take revenge. It's more complicated, I guess, because I guess by the end, different people are in business with each other who seem <laughs> yeah, like Lee, that. Lee had ripped him off, essentially, when he went to prison, right? Yeah. I, yeah, I guess and so. Was, <laughs> all, all the little gun battles they've gotten into were tied to this drug money that Lee had in his possession, but he roped Bucky into taking part in it under false pretenses. So- 
when they get in the shootout after the stakeout, that was like an assassination attempt on somebody that knew Lee had this money. It's all very twisty and intertwined. Yeah, which all unfolds rather quickly at the end. But here they don't know that yet, right? He does know that Lee has it out for DeWitt because DeWitt carved his initials into the back of K, which is a gruesome thing to do. And, Not a nice uh, so thing to do, no. That's yeah, plenty of motivation good. for, at least in this case, Lee is motivated. Like, okay, he wants to go fuck up this criminal DeWitt. I get it. He's got some real motivation there. And then we have a big Brian De Palma signature set piece scene, the staircase in the building. Yeah, you called out some shades of the untouchables, which I definitely agree with. Just the architecture in the building really calls back to some prominent scenes from The Untouchables. Yeah, you've got the marble staircase and a lot of it's in slow motion. People running up steps or running down steps, as happens in that famous Untouchables scene where if our listeners remember, the baby carriage goes rolling down the steps in slow motion and there's a shootout and a rescue happening all at once. I fucking love the assassin that's with Bobby DeWitt trying to take out Lee because he goes to strangle him with piano wire but he holds it above his head and <laughs> runs at him from a fucking football field away. Oh he is God. running for no joke, like 50 yards, just with his arms <laughs> up in the air and piano wire gripped between them. It's just, it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Yeah, <laughs> I laughed out loud at that. That really got me. Because the great part is that they set it up because Bucky's trying to get there in time to save Lee. And he looks up and he's Lee's, you know, two more big flights up. And he sees a shadow behind him of some hands high in the air with the piano wire. And that's how he goes, look out, there's a guy behind you. He's about to strangle you with the piano wire. He could have said all that and still had plenty of time for Lee to turn around without fucking far away this guy was. <laughs> Lee turns around and the guy, because, you know, the way movie lighting works, to cast that cool shadow, you actually have to be 35 feet away near the light <laughs> fixture. So that's where the guy is when he turns around. The guy is so far away that he has time to run behind a column and hide. And Lee goes, where'd the guy go? I don't see a guy. And he turns it's back around. He looks over the rail and he goes, Bucky, what are you talking about? There's no guy behind me with piano wire. And during the time he's conveying that through his confused look, he's looking back down over the rail away from the guy. The guy has time to run with his hands extended fully over his head and catch up to him and get him. Oh. And, he, and he gets him. And just to add to this, the guy that we're talking about isn't an assassin. That's Georgie. That's Emmett Linscott. That's right. That's right. That friend is, oh, who's been disfigured because of the situation with the wife and who is Madeline's dad. Like, so fucking complicated. And you don't know any of that yeah. in this. You're just like, that's the freaky guy with the big eyes and the scarred face. And he makes a great scary assassin. You're like, I don't know where this boogeyman came from. He's hilarious, but he's also scary once he's got the <laughs> piano wire around your neck. Yes. Man, I don't know. I appreciated this scene. Just for, I had to rewind it. I was like, am I exaggerating for comedic effect? No, I'm not. Like, You're absolutely is- not. Folks, watch this scene. It is ridiculous the way it's yes. staged. And it's hard to swallow because the scene is so stylish. Like we said, there's no laugh out loud moments in The Untouchables, but this evokes that feeling, a quiet marble staircase and people getting shot and the shadows. And it's all very cool and stylish. And you're like, oh no, the shadow. And then goofy Google-eyed guy is running with his hands over his head. It feels like they cut in a scene from a Naked Gun sequel <laughs> into this movie because of how far away he is and how he just hides behind this little pillow. Killer. You almost are like, all right, if Lee dies now, that's fine because he's that's so fucking him. stupid. That's on you, buddy. Yeah. yeah and he does is. die and he almost escapes, but a shadowy figure comes out of the shadows with a switchblade and cuts his fucking throat. And then the scene regains its dignity and it's 
scary impact because the two of them, Lee's throat is cut. The two of them fall over the edge of the railing, straight head down into a sharp stone fountain at the bottom of this atrium. And it's pretty cool. You know, we love a yeah. cool kill in the blast zone. We do. And this is the cool kill of the movie, I thought. Absolutely. Fucking Georgie, the assassin's head is speared by a diamond-shaped stone and it smashes and Lee's dead. And it's pretty brutal and cool. Yeah. They don't shy away from showing the aftermath of impact. <laughs> it's pretty gruesome and it's effective, but everything leading up to it is silly as all can be. Yeah. But then I put a note in here. I don't know if you had a chance to see it before, but I think the building owner, isn't that Maury Friedman, the mobster that we meet briefly in the beginning of the movie? It is Maury Friedman. I, and I recognized him as the guy in the party and they actually do a flashback where they go, oh, remember the guy from New Year's Eve? He's the building yeah. owner. He's the one who tipped Lee. So you're like, oh, was Maury Friedman involved in setting Lee up to be killed here? Or was he actually trying to help him? I don't think he was part of the setup because his whole attitude about it after the fact is the way I am when I come in the room and my kids have spilled a bunch of milk. I'm like, oh, <laughs> sh- come on, guys. Like, really? I got to clean this up now? Oh, man. Yeah. He's just like mildly annoyed. He's like, I don't know. What else can I do? <laughs> yeah. What, what am I going to do? do? It cuts to them. They're in the basement of the building. Uh, Bucky's sitting there. Which he's has a fucking, like this gigantic industrial furnace in it, which I yeah. guess you need to heat a building of that size. But The gas furnace and or incinerator, because they're about to use it as a crematorium. And Maury's got his gang of henchmen that are wheeling the bodies in one after another. They're like, okay, here's the guy who died. We don't even know who he is because his head exploded when it hit the yeah. fountain. I guess we should burn him, right? Yeah. Okay. Throw him in the thing. Bucky's like, I don't care. And then wheel up another. Like, first of all, where do they get all these gurneys? Why do they have gurneys for each body, like separate ones? Then they come up another There's gurney. There's a doctor's office in the building. It's a big mixed-use building. It's commercial and uh, residential. No? He's like, look at this. This is your partner. Do you want to say any words? And he's like, oh, fuck my partner. And he's fucking dead. What? And he's like, oh, we should probably throw him in the fire too, right? I can't think of anything else to do with them. I just can't see any way out of it. He's just very, he's very throwing his hands up in the air. He's deeply ambivalent. And I, I relate. He's just, it's a mood. Yeah. Maury Friedman is a mood in the scene. It is a mood. I, mean, I guess look what you, you fucking guys did. You made a mess. Now you can love him for that. Yeah. If I was in a like a Goodfellas kind of mood and he was a character from that movie, I would have totally vibed with him, but I was just put off. Yeah. No, I get it. It's a little bit of a, a weird tone to hit because we're supposed to be emotional at this point because, you know, one of the main characters has just died. Bucky is but, crushed, right? Bucky is crying yeah, as he yeah. likes to do in every other scene. And he's standing over the body of his partner, whom he's started to suspect of something. Well, didn't have to suspect. He saw him kill DeWitt. Like, he shoots DeWitt. So he's like, okay, my partner went too far. He killed a criminal but I get why he did it. And I loved him. He was my guy. And he stands over the body and he's got this line to deliver that's a reference to when they were boxing in the first 45 minutes of the movie. And they had the lamest fucking nicknames of all time. They, um, yeah, the subhead of the boxing match was Fire and Ice because one of them was Mr. Fire and one of them was Mr. Ice and didn't relate to anything. Batman movie. It's stupid. But, so so, so, so Hartnett Hart Hart has to say the line, Fire and Ice. Fire and ice. And that's supposed to be... <laughs> he says it like littering and like from Super Troopers. Fire and ice. He doesn't land it. No, it's so awkward. Was he ever into fire? If he would have at some point been a scene where they were bros and, yeah, we're fire and ice. Let's drink to fire and ice. You'll be my brother forever. <laughs> that would have been the setup that would have made this scene work. And at the end, he goes, oh, fuck, man, fire and ice. It's, it's done. We're done. There's no more fire and ice. But none of that existed. So it's just him like, oh, remember when the poster said fire and ice? Fuck, fire and ice. Nice. That's his last word. What he really should have said is like, all right, man, I'm going to go fuck your girlfriend now. Because <laughs> yeah, now all bets does. are off. I did have to check because I could have sworn the actor that played Maury Friedman 
was in Goodfellas and you made that <laughs> reference, but he was only he was in Casino, not Goodfellas. Oh, okay. Got Anthony him. Russell. Yeah, he played a bookie in Casino. I knew I recognized his face. Yeah, so, he's effective. He's um, a all right. So do you want to walk us through the end of the movie? As convoluted as it is. Oh my God, that was hard. That middle section, I thought that was the short section. That was long as shit. And it's not getting any less complicated. we have for this last section? We have the mystery <laughs> is unfolding and there are layers and layers. So get ready, get a drink. Yeah. If you need to pause, get a drink here, stretch your legs. You're talking comes. to me or the listeners? <laughs> well, the listeners, but if you need to. <laughs> I have a bottle of whiskey in this room, but no glass. So All right, let's try to muscle through this. So- with Lee gone, Bucky and Kay become romantically involved. But then Bucky finds some money that Lee had stolen from DeWitt and stashed in Kay's house. Bucky is mad about being used by Lee in his crooked scheme, so he runs out on Kay and right back into Madeline's bed. Then Bucky discovers that the Dahlia's porn film was actually shot in a rundown bungalow owned by Madeline's father, Emmett. And in the garage of that bungalow, he finds the apparent crime scene goes back to the Lynn Scotts and he confronts the whole family. Emmett admits that he hired Elizabeth Short to go on a date with his old friend Georgie, whom Emmett had previously disfigured when he found out that Georgie was Madeline's real father. Then Ramon is there. She admits that she showed up at the date between Short and Georgie and murdered the girl out of spite. And after she admits that, she pulls out a gun and blows her brains out right there on the stairs. Later, Bucky confronts Madeline in a motel room. She admits that she's the one who murdered Lee in the stairwell. She was the shadowy figure with the switchblade because Lee had been blackmailing her father. Bucky, learning this, shoots Madeline dead and he puts the black dahlia behind him for good and gets back together with Kay. Wild, man. Yeah. Did that make sense to I did anybody? want to say, I forgot to note this at the time. It was obviously like a female silhouette with a switchblade, right? Like you kind yeah. of see the hair tied up in a bun at one point. When oh, really? Supposed okay. to be it's a very dark slender face. Yeah. yeah. It looks like a woman in a suit. I thought it was Kay at first, but like when it was Madeline, I was like, oh, that also makes sense. But Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's all the mystery that it was intended to. You didn't know which of the mysterious women it could have been. Or Elizabeth Short herself. I don't know how that would make yeah. sense. But, yeah. <laughs> she stitched herself back together. I don't put anything past the Elroy and De Palma by proxy. So yeah, the reveal that it was Georgie is yeah. a bit of a wet fart, huh? I don't know. <laughs> you know, Ramona's involvement in it, I guess, was a bit of a surprise, but it wasn't Yeah, wasn't, it's a, a double reveal. reveal. And you can see where in the book, there's more room to let that unfold, but it happens super fast. Georgie has not been in the film, except as we said, as the scary-eyed killer. But Georgie kind of didn't exist for us, except as a guy who they kept telling us about. And then within mere moments, we find out Georgie, like not only was he Emmett Linscott's best friend, he was Ramona's secret lover. He fathered Madeline. Emmett Linscott was furious when he found out and he disfigured Georgie, who they had previously said got hurt in a car accident, but no, Emmett did it himself. But then Emmett actually liked the fact that he wasn't Madeline's father because he wanted to fuck around with Madeline and he's well she's not actually related to me so even though I raised her as my daughter I'm now gonna have a sexual relationship <sighs> with her a lot going on in this story His family and is not not great not yeah, great not stuff to, going on yeah and then we haven't even touched on their taste in art so. god this fucking painting I'm gonna have to put this in the show notes too we gotta put a picture gotta of this painting it. in the show notes because <laughs> it is it. so obviously horrifying I have the same problem with this painting the painting's of George right of Georgie or is it of Emmett who is it of I think in researching this I don't know that it's necessarily of anyone I think it's actually supposed to be of the character in the silent film that they all watched earlier in the movie about the scary man with the smile. Right. Remember the, the Glasgow, Glasgow grin? Because that's what Georgie has and that's what they gave 
Elizabeth Short. It's like the yeah, slice. yeah, slicing her cheeks open like a mouth. big Joker smile thing. But I looked at George. George doesn't really have that. George has different kind of. He's got some scarring, I think, in that spot where you could tell, like maybe he got it, but it got stitched up and healed up. Okay, well, think. I'll go with that. But I—that's what you would expect because, yeah, it, this whole thing is about Georgie and Ramona and people's having smiles cut into their faces. But it turns out that Ramona's the fan of the art. Like she claims it. She's like, yeah, that's my thing, and she does it in her breakdown scene she keeps making the smiley face and running her fingers through her cheeks like to to sell that this performance from fiona shaw is <laughs> just breathtaking in this scene especially i know i alluded to it that her final scene is a doozy this is a, the dooziest of doozies should have been submitted to the oscars i don't know why it wasn't <laughs> but this painting that they have it's also eight feet tall it's a fucking huge painting <laughs> it's a huge thing it's the second biggest scream out loud at art moment in the movie after the fuck cartoon that Madeline's little sister <laughs> reveals like he Bucky's in this room and he turns around and it just fills the screen this giant clown face on the wall it's so evil and weird and he gets this deadpan line right what does he say <laughs> he looks at it we're all screaming because we've seen the most horrifying scary clown <laughs> painting we've ever seen and he turns to Madeline and goes I don't get modern art wow, wow. <laughs> like, I have what? the same problem with this painting that I have with the doll from the Annabelle movies, Annabelle, okay. I assume her name is, is it's so obviously horrifying that there's no question it has some kind of sinister connotation, right? Like you see the doll Annabelle and you're like, okay, that's evil and it's yes. going to kill me. You right. see this clown painting in this house. You're like, whoever would hang this in their house is a monster and definitely killed the Black <laughs> Dolly and probably everybody else in the city of Los Angeles that's ever been killed. So it removes any, but that's why they, I think they wait to focus on it until the end of the movie. It's just so obviously a red flag. Yeah. If you would have seen that painting and Anytime earlier on, the fucking cops would have swarmed in and shut the whole thing down. So then when Kay catches Bucky with Madeline, because he's not coming home or answering, I guess there's no cell phones. He's not coming home. That's the only way you could get in touch with somebody back then. He runs out on her. They showed up at your house. Where did he go? But she catches him and Madeline. She screams at him. She looks like that dead girl. And I'm like, she has hair and, you know, like (laughs) hands. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Like They're both like white ladies. They don't look alike. They don't really look alike. The film keeps harping on this bothers me more than it should probably. They have dark hair. Maybe it's black. It's mid-length. Slightly curly. We don't even know what color Elizabeth Short's hair is because we only see her in black and white footage. That's true. I guess we see her dead body, but you know, that's, you're not really focusing on those soggy at that point. Her hair could have started in any color and wound up looking black. Right, but I'm pretty sure she has black hair when she's a corpse and Hilary Swank has like medium brown hair. It's not like (laughs) suspiciously dark. I don't know. Focusing on this way too much, but it bothered me. Yeah. And, and Scarlett Johansson really struggles with that line. That's one of those scenes in the end where Scarlett is just, she can't lift the weight that she wants out of Bulgaria, man. She wants to get out of Bulgaria in a hurry and I don't blame her. She looks like that dead girl. It's this accusatory line that falls really flat because like you said, it doesn't really make sense. And is that really what Kay should be mad about at that point? Be mad about him running out on her. Not this obsession, which no one really realized, but she says it. It comes out really flat and then immediately they repeat it. Then they show Bucky alone and the line is echoing through his head and we hear it repeating. I'm like, guys, that line was not worth repeating right it's not the trump card you think it is no how sick are you yeah is that what she says how sick are you yeah Yeah. that's what an awkward thing to say it is it is not it's not a great cinematic line no maybe it works on the page because i do think that is a direct quote from the book but as harrison ford famously told george lucas you can write this ship but you sure can't say it (laughs) exactly this is a full-on harrison ford case in point 
So he goes back to the Linscott's house to confront them after putting the pieces together. You called this out, but I wanted to say, I feel like this is why Bucky is still on the LAPD. <laughs> Maybe the best shot in the history of cinema. Like, whatever, yeah. the, whatever the opposite of a stormtrooper is. That's what Bucky Black. That's what is. he is. He corners them. They're up on the staircase. He's at the bottom of the staircase and he starts to try to threaten them. He whips out his little revolver. And first he shoots a vase. Emmett Linscott's like, that was a Ming. And like, it's turning into con- Like, this is the dramatic showdown where you're finding out who the killer is. It's the end of the mystery. The killer is about to admit that they did the crime and it gets really over the top. So he shoots a vase. You go, okay, that can happen. And then they still, they don't believe he's serious. And then he whips his gun over to the other side, fires a shot and knocks the head off of a life-size Roman statue. Clean off. One shot. Don't quote me on this, but does he have one hand on his gun too? Is he? Just- oh yeah, yeah. He's not stopping and like aiming two-handed. He's just like whipping it around and they still fuck with him. They're like, you wouldn't shoot us just because you've done all this shooting already. You're not the kind of man who shoots a gun. And he goes, what the fuck are you talking about? Of course I am. And he whips his gun up towards the ceiling, blasts another shot from the hip and severs the 15-foot chandelier that is hanging 40 feet above him at the top of this three-story atrium and it crashes to the ground in front of them, knocking out the lights. Wow. Yeah, this, this guy is... should be on the fucking the Buffalo Bill Wild West stunt show. Or the Olympics. Sh- you know, <laughs> or like the shooting Olympics. is an Olympic sport. Yeah, biathlon. He ran into this room and he started knocking down targets like anything. I did like that shooting the chandelier down made Ramona stumble out of her bedroom. She'd be like, will you guys shut the fuck up? That's right. Oh, yeah. She had like, some I'm great trying to sleep. <laughs> about Stop shooting my shit. That was some, that was some yeah. funny dialogue, even though she But this so is not crazy. the time for the funny dialogue. Yeah, <laughs> like, don't you know? to be rich don't keep art simply for themselves we are curating it for future generations for a movie that's just been so pitch black and devoid of humor they picked a weird time to lean into becoming a black comedy yeah and emmett linscott is like that too like he's almost laughing at everything that's happening to him in the world even in he's detached he he doesn't seem like he's concerned about anything yeah so yeah let's wrap this up man (laughs) yeah this this thing is long as shit so the pieces start adding up real fast at the end there's a bunch of flashbacks to help us understand because we've seen so much stuff and in a good mystery the feeling you would get is wow oh my god and in this movie it's like this explains all the shit that didn't make any sense before and i had to sit through it and now i know why right like you said a good mystery is one you should be able to like put the pieces together for yourself Um, yeah but there's none of that here simply because georgie for the most part is just a character that's like spoken about right it's poorly done it's a poorly done reveal and i'm being charitable and saying that's the edit's fault you know stuff was cut stuff was missing that would have made that a little more of a shocking and and satisfying reveal that they hoped it would be but who can say we got what we got. There's no director's cut of the Black Dahlia coming because nobody gives a fuck about this movie. Oh, that's good for us. We don't have to watch it. I'd watch it, though, because as much as like we're making like this movie had some good stuff. It had a lot of the pieces. And maybe there was another version where all those pieces actually added up to a movie that made sense. Maybe. But and also we, we should mention that he does shoot Madeline and kill her. Yeah, that's, that was cool. Right? Yeah. Oh, was, we mentioned it in the actual synopsis. Yeah. And she again, after seeing him shoot the fuck out of everything in her house previously. Her She's like, mom, I don't think you even own a gun. He's like, you just saw me <laughs> shoot like a what bunch of have, stuff. What else do I have to shoot to fucking be threatening to you? And she's like, yeah, you'd rather fuck me than shoot. And she makes a case. She's yeah. like, some other bad shit happened. And all you did was come back here and have sex with me. I think you would rather fuck me than shoot me. And he's like, well, that's where you're wrong. I'm done crying. I've cried throughout this whole movie. Actually, he's not done crying. He cries at the end scene. 
too, but he's like, I'm almost done crying. Now he washed his hair with the shooting. no more tears shampoo that morning. <laughs> he's ready to go. No more tears, no more tangles, but one more shot should be enough to do away with you, Madeline. You're dead in a motel. And uh, then he goes and has dinner with Scarlett Johansson, and that's the end of the movie. Yeah, with a, such a classic final line of the movie. If you would let me do a dramatic reading of the line, I think. Oh, by all means. <laughs> Even if you haven't seen the movie, this line I think will really hit home. For the first time in my life, I had people that knew that for the briefest of times in the darkest of places, I had been so, so good at some things. What the hell? What's stupid? It means nothing. <laughs> the most convoluted, like nothing. Like <laughs> stop something. Stop somewhere earlier in this thing. For the first time in my life, I had people that cared about me. Okay, that's good. That's, sure. that's something meaningful. It's so qualified. For the briefest of times, in the darkest of places, I had been so, so good at some things. And what are the things? Are we supposed to know what the things are? Was it boxing and shooting chandeliers? It's not really detective work. Yes, I guess. For all the information we have, those are the two things he's good at is... Fucking his best friend's girlfriend. Floor tiles. Oh, yeah. Does that. He immaculate. doesn't do a good job of it, though, because he finds a, <laughs> tears the wall down. Finds he kind of smashes a lot of stuff, collateral damage, as he's trying to replace a little tile. No, that last line is goofy in a very interesting way. Maybe oh, in the, it lists sure. another one of those things like, well, maybe in the book it meant something and they try to just copy and paste it whole into this and it, it didn't mean anything. It's probably been 20 years since I read the book. So I'd have to uh, go back and, and do, but I think I'm going to reread it soon because now I have the movies fresh in my mind. I want to see the differences and it's not a terribly long book. I don't okay. think as far as Elroy goes, some of his books can be slogs. Yeah. But worth it just for me to get the taste of the movie out of your mouth. The book is much more horrifying, but at least it all makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so you want to talk about the production of this movie and the aftermath of it now that we've spent an hour talking about the story? Oh my God, um, we wound our way through. Let's hear what unwound for Brian De Palma after this. So as I alluded to, this was a swan song with the studio system in Hollywood. He would make Redacted in 2007, which had a $5 million budget, so 10% the budget of this movie, and still yeah. was a bomb. Got mixed reviews. It's a companion piece to Casualties of War. His war film with uh, Michael J. Fox and Sean Penn, he considers it almost like a, a spiritual sequel to it. It's not a bad movie. It's very upsetting, but so is Casualties of War, so that makes sense. But a good movie. And then he made 2012's Passion, which did not get a wide release, but it had a decent budget. I think it had a $20 million budget, but it never got theatrical release, so it failed to recoup its budget, obviously. That's with Rachel McAdams and I think Numi Rapace. Okay. I haven't seen it. And then in 2019, he made Domino, which he's effectively disowned. That was another movie made overseas with overseas money. Mm. And I guess the investors he had wanted to be more involved than he wanted them to be and took over the movie. So he basically says, that's not my movie. Okay. And he's in his 80s now, and that's the last movie he's made. I, I don't know how many more films he has in him. He certainly has left behind a, a good enough legacy if he decides to just call it a day. But yeah, he definitely could. Kind of a sad note to go out on having seven movies just bomb financially. Yeah, he's had a weird career. He was a hired gun for part of it and had some big successes out of those kind of movies. And then his more of his passion projects, some of them which are very highly regarded, didn't bring in the big bucks. Like Blowout. Then- Blowout was a bomb, though. Oh, yeah, when it came out, I, I, that would be a fun one to cover one day. For sure. Bonfire of the Vanities, of course, is a famous fiasco, but I yeah. actually have a book about that called Hard Candy that I bought that I want to read that tells the story of the making of it. So before we ever cover that, I'd want to finish that book just for some extra details. But the movie was written by Josh Friedman, who you gave me some interesting facts about today. So he hadn't done much. His only previous screenwriting credit was Spielberg's War of the Worlds, which, as I've mentioned before, I like like 80% of it a lot. But He'd done some uncredited rewrites and smaller sci-fi stuff, and then he became the showrunner and creator of the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which was a cult TV show Uh that was well-received by critics, but didn't get a ton of viewers. But he's now the screenwriter for Avatar 2. Somehow out of this, he was plucked 
if that movie that writer's room comes to pass. But yeah, he's up there on IMDb as the sole screenwriter. Probably not based on his Black Dahlia work, but I don't think when the movie comes out, he'll be still be credited as the sole screenwriter because there's like a writer's room going on for all these Avatar sequels. Uh, There was some insane variety article about James Cameron, like not letting them write for a month. He just locked them in a room and made them talk about Avatar and like its impact (laughs) on society because James Cameron's a fucking weirdo. (laughs) So that was like, that's why I remembered that there is an actual writer's room for all these movies. So I'm sure by the time that comes out, the credits will change. Don't have to, don't have to. But he's at least working on it. Yeah. Yeah. Good for him. Um, It didn't sink him. He's doing fine. The original idea for this, Fincher had a couple directions he wanted to go with this when he was attached. His first idea was a miniseries, but shot with a movie budget and filmed like a movie, which he would do with Mindhunter eventually. Yeah, that was kind of ahead of its time, right? To be thinking of that back when this was first in development. Yeah, big budget with movie stars. And that was not a thing that was happening back then. It's too bad that the market wasn't ready for that because a Fincher version of this (laughs) would have been awesome as a premium cable show. Maybe someone could just redo it, right? It's not like anybody remembers this fucking movie. No, yeah. (laughs) Who gives a shit? Just start fresh. They'll eventually probably will. I like some of his casting ideas. He wanted Juliana Margulies for Madeline. I think that's an interesting choice. I like her. And Jennifer Connelly for Elizabeth Short. Yeah. I'll never say no to more Jennifer Connelly. Not that they really look alike either, but still. (laughs) Not really. But Jennifer Connelly, yeah, could have pulled off. She has her own version of that wounded soul. That would have been really interesting as the Dahlia. She plays, interestingly, a similar character in Dark City, which we'll be covering in the coming months. It's on the schedule at some point. Oh, yeah. That's like a sci-fi neo-noir. I don't really know what you would call it, but she plays like a femme fatale type in that movie. So some of the names thrown around for Lee Blanchard are hilarious. I don't think anybody in this list except one could have actually pulled it off. Okay, let's hear the list and your your pick. (laughs) Michael Douglas, who Uh had, wasn't he like an old man by this point? Yeah, but he had that Hollywood bro power that let him take whatever roles. But he was playing a boxer, like a heavyweight boxer. That would have been hard to pull off the shirtless (laughs) scenes. Uh, Johnny Depp, no. Fuck you. Uh, Gabriel Byrne, also, I think, maybe too old at this point for this role. A little old, but his version of the grizzled detective would have been pretty fun. He could definitely play the hard-boiled detective. Again, the boxing is a barrier to entry, though, because he's not really a physically imposing presence on screen, where Eckhart has a bit of a heft to him. He seems like he could throw a punch. Yeah, he looks uh, good. Billy in Crudup, his tank I was like, Crudup, Crudup? I think it's Crudup, Crudup right? Maybe. Maybe. I can see that. <laughs> yeah. But he's young for Lee compared to. Yeah, they're going, they're, they're going all scattershot with these guys. Because, yeah, the Lee should feel a few years older, more jaded than. than like, the I think Billy character. Crudup now could play Lee. But not then. I could have seen him as Bucky, honestly, at this point in his career. So then some of the ideas for Bucky, Paul Walker, no, RIP, not the finest dramatic actor. No. (laughs) Steven Dorff. I don't know. No. He's too much of a scumbag. You think? He just exudes like a sleaziness. I know what you mean. I think you need a babe in the woods type actor, which Hartnett had. He just couldn't turn on the other side of the character, where I think Dorf could turn on. You could only be that side of the character. He would not flip like too fast. Yeah. Right. And Chris O'Donnell is interesting because he was kind of washed up already at this point. Before he got back on like TV roles, he was out of the spotlight. Okay. But I kind of like Chris O'Donnell as Bucky. Yeah, he's not far off from Josh Hartnett in terms of his range of boyish. Yeah, but he, I think he has a little bit of a darkness to him that Hartnett didn't have at this point in his career. Okay. Jeez, I'm going to have to say this name. Feruza Bulk from The Craft and The yeah. Waterboy and Tiffany Amber Thiessen, my childhood crush, were both considered for oh, yeah. the short. Classic crush for us young boys. Yes. All and Mark Wahlberg was attached to play Blanchard while Hartnett was attached to play Bucky. I feel like they're the same age. So again, that doesn't work. And just 
Give me less Mark Wahlberg on this podcast. We didn't need him in there, but I could see how Wahlberg would have worked. I could see why he got that oh, far. It's Bobby DeWitt. He's getting out of prison. Oh, in his little weird cadence he likes to talk in. <laughs> but he had to drop out because the Italian job. And then the Italian job got pushed back and they were like, hey, the Italian job got pushed back. And he was like, yeah, still don't want to do it. So fuck you guys. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal was offered the part of Elizabeth Short, but turned it down. Okay. She's a fine actress. I'm sure she would have done a good job. Yeah, she could have run with that pretty nicely. I don't think I've ever really seen her be out of place in a role. Gwen Stefani was in the running for Kay Lake. And then she would play an old-timey movie star in The Aviator. So she uh, people love okay. casting her in like these period pieces. I guess she's got like the face of an old-timey movie star. She's got a look. Yeah, she looks like a pin-up model. I don't know that I've seen her like act-act because when she was in The Aviator, it was mostly non-speaking scenes and she certainly looked the part, but I don't know if she could pull off the dramatic roles that Scarlett Johansson almost couldn't pull off. If Scarlett Johansson couldn't do it, I don't have a lot of hope for Gwen Stefani. Hartnett's career is an interesting one because he disappeared for a little while. You want to hear where he went? Where could he have gone? He famously turned down the chance to play both Superman in Brian Singer's Superman Returns and to be Christopher Nolan's Batman. Wow. He said, no, thank you. I would not like to you know, swim in a pool of money like Scrooge McDuck. These are <laughs> Will Smith level gaffes, like turning <laughs> right. down Neo just a couple of weeks ago on this very pod. Will Smith was like, no, thanks. And I Django. Don't. Yeah. Matrix so, sounds dumb. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, Batman sounds like a nobody. I don't want to be him. Batman. Who's that? Never heard of him. No, he made a point of saying he liked time off. He wasn't a big fan of physically demanding roles necessarily, but he did okay. theorize that he fell out of favor with casting directors and filmmakers when he kept turning down these huge opportunities and his big roles dried up at a yeah. certain point. He starred in 30 Days of Night, which we talked about before filming. I'm a big fan of Yeah, a uh, really cool movie. He's made foreign films, stuff like I, I Come With the Rain and The Lovers, oh, and man. then stuff I've never heard of before researching for this podcast, stuff like Bunraku, which I've never heard of, Wild Horses. Then he starred in Penny Dreadful, a show on Showtime, which people seem to like, but I've never watched. Yeah. Also with Eva Green. He was a regular on that show. I think part of the main cast, he got good reviews for it. He was even nominated for a Fangoria Chainsaw Award, which they say is second only to the uh, Academy <laughs> Award. It's a close second. And then he came back in Wrath of Man, the new Guy Ritchie movie in 2021. He had a prominent role in that. So he seems to be easing his way back into the good graces of Hollywood now. And I could see him being an appealing actor with a few more years under his belt. Yeah, that sounds like a win for him to be in a stylish movie instead of just a very Hollywood movie. So Swank followed up this role, which was her first since Million Dollar Baby, of course, her Oscar winning role with another critically reviled bomb that I saw in theaters called The Reaping, which is okay. a horror movie with a very early Idris Elba performance, like when he was breaking into movies. Interesting. After The Wire. I think that was like one of his first big movies. Saw that in theaters with my buddy Phil. Shout out, Phil, if you listen to the podcast. It's not good. We might cover it maybe next Halloween for Blastober. We can look at that one. And then she played Amelia Earhart in a movie that she produced. That bombed got bad reviews called, very creatively, Amelia. Interesting. But, you know, she's still acting. She's working. She's doing good stuff. She was great in Logan Lucky. I really liked oh, her yeah. in that. I even liked her in The Hunt, which was that movie that was very controversial. Right. With, I didn't uh, see it, but. About liberals hunting red state people on an island. That everyone got upset about before they even knew what the story was. Right. That's a movie that bombed, but also it was released in March 2020. Right. I don't know if you remember March 2020. There was some stuff going on back then. Not a winning moment for the entertainment industry. So when the movie opened, we mentioned it opened in second place with only 10 million behind the Gridiron Gang. Mm. Uh, yeah, Gridiron Gang. That one's not coming back to me. I don't remember no. the Oscar acceptance speech too well. Yeah, it was one of those things where they played them off really quick. No, I think the 
classic gridiron. Is that the Rocks movie where he plays like a, a football coach? Yeah, it is. The Rock's career has two phases, one with hair and one without. So he was still the Rock with hair. Oh, boy. Early Rock performance. Anyway, that beat Black Dahlia at the box office. But there was really nothing out when the Black Dahlia came out that would have competed for its dollars. You know, like there was no no kind of similar movies just getting released. There was Invincible, The Illusionist, and Hollywoodland. Hollywoodland is like another similarly set in L.A. story. It's a period piece, but it had been out for weeks by that point and also bombed. And it would drop all the way to sixth place in its second weekend with four and a half million beat by Jackass number two, a great film. I'm not even being sarcastic. The movie, all the Jackass movies are fun. They're all super fun, especially to see in a theater. Fearless, Flyboys and All the King's Men also premiered that week. And then it made $2 million the third week and 500,000 its fourth. And you can see where it went from there. There was no real movie star in this movie leading the cast. It had pretty bad reviews. Audiences hated it. I cannot stress enough how hard it is for audiences to give a cinema score rating that's that bad. Like they typically will give anything at least like a B plus. So to see a D plus on a movie like this is is shocking. So bad word of mouth seems just as likely as anything for why this movie failed so spectacularly. Did you have any insight into kind of what you thought the main issues plaguing this one were? We've talked about a lot of issues with the story and the way it was told and the way it was edited. But for me, I hate to do it to this very likable actor, Josh Hartnett. (laughs) Whatever chance this movie might have had, I think he sunk it. The noir genre is known for the certain things, melodramatic stories, sick people, twisted relationships complicated plots and to swallow a story with all that stuff that's so dark people that are so bad the tone matters the movie has to set this tone this shit is really bad in the world this is the worst of it and at the center of that is this hero who is somehow the guy that you trust to get through this world and his hard-boiled character is how he survives and floats through this world and you look to him as the example oh that's our little pillar of strength and he might break down in the climactic point but he's the guy whose attitude takes you through the movie and then this movie Hartnick could never summon that attitude and so it was like this really squishy everyman is being dragged through this shit world and we got nothing to hold on to. It's just him and he's not going to save us. And so everything in this world feels too over the top and too weird without a solid guy to banker you. And that's where I feel like whatever chance it had was lost. As always, Ian, very well said. I, th- I think that's a good point that you you do need that strong, sturdy presence to anchor all the insanity that's going on in this movie. And without it, it just goes off the rail. And like I said, it, it becomes almost an unintentional black comedy at the end. Like I firmly believe <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) They thought that they were filming some heavy dramatic scenes there. I I suspect Fiona Shaw kind of knew what she was doing. (laughs) She was the only one who was in on the show. She was the only one that kind of knew what was happening. But yeah, the movie just wasn't... First of all, it's an extremely grisly subject matter. So that's going to be a barrier to entry for a lot of filmgoers. Because, you know, even if you're a little familiar with the Black Dahlia story, you know it's a particularly heinous murder. And you're like, do I want to sit through two hours of this? Brian De Palma is not a filmmaker with a lot of credit to his name at this point. You know, his movies are all failing for various reasons. Most of them just not being well-liked at the time. And Hartnett, Eckhart, Johansson at this point in their careers, they're all fine actors, but none of them are really made to headline this kind of big adult drama yet. That's true. You could argue that Eckhart and Johansson now are probably better positioned to headline this type of movie. Right. But they were up and coming. And then... It, it just wasn't that good, sadly. <laughs> that That's really what it comes down to. And it's not that good material will always overcome whatever shortcomings, because we've learned time and again on this podcast that it's not the case. Good movies fail financially all the time. 
but it certainly doesn't help. And there's a difference between critics disliking a movie and audiences. And it happens less than you think where they convene to hate on a movie together. But this is one of those perfect storms where yeah. what chance did it have? No. <sighs> I'm tired of talking. My face hurts. My face feels like a Glasgow smile. Why so serious, Ian? All right. So that was the Black Dahlia. I'll go light up <laughs> a couple cigarettes and put on a fedora and just chill. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know you were making love tonight. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, please remember to rate, review, subscribe to the pod. Leave us a review if you like what you're hearing. Please follow us on Twitter at BlastZonePod. Yeah. Shoot us an email, BlastZonePod at gmail.com. Do all that fun stuff. And uh, we'll see you next time in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone.